You're listening to the Alchemy of Self podcast with Romza. The world is currently in a state of rebirth. All of the systems we have inherited are collapsing and failing us as a species. It's time for us to come together and create something out of nothing. If you crave deeper purpose, unshakable strength, and a life aligned with your truth, this is for you. This is for you if you are curious and not afraid to ask questions. This podcast is for those searching for their purpose and those ready to step into their full potential. For lovers of truth and those ready for masculine medicine, this podcast is an adventure that gives voice to a journey of healing, discovery, and embodiment. We'll challenge the old narratives we inherited and forge a new path. Join us in this fearless exploration of the multiple dimensions of being human, breathwork, mindset, healing the body, detox, and how to use the gentle way of jujitsu to make you unstoppable in your wellness, business, life, relationships, and more. This meditation series is going to be a little different than the usual podcasts. You can come back to this as much as you like while it's still up on all of the different platforms that my podcast is hosted on. In the last 12 years, I have been greatly inspired by many of the ancient Eastern mystics and their ways. Buddhism has really entrenched in my heart and soul, and I wanted to share some stories that I've read with you so that we can sit together and let them work through our souls and bodies and minds together. These specific stories are from a book called Bring Me the Rhinoceros and Other Zen Koans That Will Save Your Life by John Tarrant. It's an incredible book. I have read and reread it many times. If you ever see my copy, it's really beat up and I love it. I recommend you buy it and have it in your library. I really, really do. So this is how this is going to work. It's really simple. Find a comfortable seat, a yoga block, a cushion, or even a chair. And as I read these Zen Koans and stories attached to them, I want you to close your eyes and listen. After I'm done reading, we will meditate together. If this is your first time meditating with me, these are the instructions for today's meditation. Sit erect, the spine straight. This is the most important thing. Consistently keep your spine straight. If it gets uncomfortable, you can make micro corrections and then come back to a sitting erect posture. Cross your feet. If you can sit in a full lotus, even better. If you can't sit like that, then you can sit in a chair. Your hands are going to form the cosmic mudra, which with the left hand on top of the right hand, the middle joints are going to be touching and the thumbs are gently touching as if you're holding a piece of paper in between them, very gently. Your hands should be held against your body with the thumbs at about the height of your navel. Hold your arms freely and easily, slightly away from your body, as if you're holding an egg under each arm without breaking it. Consistently stay erect, don't lean forward or back, or sideways. Keep your lips slightly open. Everything is relaxed yet still erect and alert. Your tongue touches the top of the palate behind your teeth, yet it is still going to be relaxed. You're going to be breathing in through your nose and into your belly. Then you're going to focus only about 25% of your attention on the outbreath. You're going to continue to come back to these points if you get lost. You're going to continue to come back to your breath if you get lost in your thoughts. There's no magic to this. It's just sitting in awareness, in proper posture, is Zazen meditation. The time that you're going to be meditating doesn't have meditation music. It's just the sounds that you will hear, whether it's my refrigerator running or my dog licking himself or something happens in the house. And that's that's what you'll hear. Real life, real meditation. And that's how we're going to sit together in this meditation. I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, just let me know. And I'll make more meditations that we can enjoy together as we walk down this ancient path of self-realization and awareness together. Friendship will walk above the vineyards, whisper together, laughing, the tendrils uncurling, sky bending, a dry earth beneath, sun stripes on hill flank, heads leaning together, and never tire of that place, Alicia Kian. It's common to feel lonely, Think of yourself as something small and solitary in the vastness of things. It's easy then to think of a friend as a home territory carved out of that vastness, a kind of living diary for sharing and storing the feelings of the day so that life can go on more or less as usual. Yet there are other kinds of friendships that don't just assuage loneliness 
but undermine it by changing your understanding of who you are. Friendships like this may be full of warm feeling. The friends may be kindred souls, recognizing that human achievements are rarely solitary, even when they seem to be. But such good reasons are not the basis of this second sort of friendship, nor the source of its nourishment. The kind of friendship doesn't depend on reasons. Reasons, after all, come and go. What is beyond reasons might seem to be incomprehensible, but there are all sorts of things that we do just for their sake, because we love them, and some friendships are beyond only, beyond any why. If you have such a friendship, it can help you find your own strength. The Koan. On Mount Dishan in China, long ago, there was a community where two men had gone to take refuge from the storms of life in the outside world, storms of which they had first-hand knowledge. Though at first they seemed to be opposites, they became friends. As it turned out, one, whose name was Zhu Feng, lived a long time and became renowned, but for many years no one expected much of him. Zhu Feng was talented in one thing. He was a chef and brought to the spiritual path a trust in hard work, precision, and pleasure. Otherwise, he was stocky, solid of body, and somewhat opaque in personality, as if a great, slowly heating energy in him kept the world somewhat at bay, while showing much about his motives and way of living. Zhu Fang hoped for an inner transformation, though it was not it wasn't no hurry to arrive. He persevered at what did not seem to be working, which in his case was meditation, since the alternative was, well, he didn't imagine the alternative. He was like the boy who doesn't have the knack with girls, but doggedly persists in inviting them out. Albert Ellis, the psychologist, tells the story that as a young man, he decided to invite 100 girls out, since the refusals that met his first few attempts were obviously the result of unpracticed technique and a small sample, both of these problems, he told himself, could be fixed by increasing the sample size. He went to the zoo, where he had noticed women on benches reading books. He too took a book and sat on a bench. He invited 100 girls on a date. Not one said yes, so he decided that 100 was itself too small a sample, and embarked on another 100 attempts. The man in our story had longed for enlightenment for 25 years. He also decided that he had not given the method enough of a chance. And this point points to the deeper side of Zhu Feng, which was that he had a feeling for duration, an appreciation that good things take time to occur. He liked to gather evidence to make the right decision, savored the slowness of gardens unfolding, of flowers and galaxies unfurling, of a mushroom sauce simmering and blending. He liked writing and remembering that the first written characters had come from the patterns made by heat when using a tortoise shell as an oracle. He wasn't sure that he actually believed that story, but as a chef, it gave him a nice sense of history. For him, achievements came through accumulation, layering one act on top of another. The other man in the story is Yan Tu, who was younger and kind of a clown who claimed to be more enlightened than the teacher. He made jokes about religion, sex, and the toilet, which was not remarkable. But he and Zhu Fang did live in a monastery. Some teachers secretly hope that such students will turn out badly. And they can say how impossible he was. Yantu's teacher was old and indifferent to others' opinions and promoted Yantu. His clowning had dark underpinnings and seemed to help maintain temple life, which could be overly devoted to light. In 845, when Buddhists were being hunted and killed by an emperor who didn't fancy them, the teacher had spent the year in a cave, doing nothing much, waiting it out. Yantu became a ferryman and took people across the river. Gaining the other shore is a metaphor for enlightenment, so this was another one of his jokes. He didn't take a crisis more seriously than, say, the weather. People admired this quality while privately wondering if it merely showed heartlessness. Zhu Fang genuinely liked Yan Tu. He was sure that Yan Tu was a kind of genius, far ahead of him in ability, yet he always felt completely accepted by the younger man. The chef believed that, just as enlightenment, enlightenment took its time coming, friendships needed time to deepen. He held Yan Tu in his heart as his friend, and when they were together, believed all things were possible. Now, if you were Yan Tu's friend, he didn't share your emotions and the disappointments of love and work. 
you couldn't talk through a crisis with him in order to continue your life on more or less the previous pre-crisis trajectory. Yantu wasn't useful for that. He didn't care about restoring normalcy. What he did help with was a change of heart. He was always willing to experiment on your mind. His empathy was not for your problems, but for the way your problem might open a gate. Whatever the differences in their approach, where you saw Yantu, you would soon see Zhu Feng. Between retreat periods, they took holidays together, wandering in the mountains, so it seemed clear that the friendship was mutual. One afternoon, late in the year, they were being tourists, walking through a valley in Hunan. Yantu had a childlike readiness to be interested in everything, a chestnut tree, a butterfly, another traveler. Sometimes he had zero attention span, but then when he did fix on something, he ignored everything else. His lively face was relatively unlined. Zhu Fang was as happy as could be with his friend. He looked straight ahead and stumped along, sweating, responsible, like a bear in a fairy tale, loaded with cooking pots. He liked to walk. He liked the load on his back and the feeling of weight that it gave to his life. Walking wasn't necessarily a means to get anywhere. To be in time, to wander, made time seem less of a burden. The present more enduring. As the afternoon wore on, they climbed higher. More mountains appeared, and they crossed out of autumn into winter. There was gravel under their feet now. Clouds spread from the north. The wind pierced their clothes. And Zhu Feng began carefully not to think about getting warm. Yantu complained and laughed and waved his arms about and seemed to enjoy the change. By evening, they made it to the pass and Tortoise Mountain Travelers Inn, which is really more of a hut. Its existence was due to cartographic whim. Two provinces had boundaries there, and a custom station was needed. Their rooms had a fire that vented underneath the brick bed that was the only furniture. In the night, when Zhu Fang went outside for a moment, it was very cold, and a wall of stillness met him. Large flakes of snow began to fall, as if he had awoken just to see them start. In the morning, no one was on the roads, and he had a timeless, restful feeling looking out at the white expanse. The two companions ate rice and millet and regarded the walls. Yantu, having exhausted his jokes, rolled back onto his part of the bed, wrapped himself in the quilt, and slept. Zhu Feng thought he could make use of this opportunity and sat up meditating. He settled quickly and didn't feel tired or bored. His mind was calm and spacious inside the little hut. He was concentrating so hard that he sweated and seemed to be losing weight. It snowed for three days and three nights. Every now and then, Yantu opened his eyes, saw Zhu Fang sitting in the firelight, got up, loaded the fire, and went back to sleep. Zhu Fang thought that his friend didn't care much about duration, about the slow gathering of readiness, and didn't seem to take time to decide or to learn. Yantu seemed like an anthropologist, as if he came from a world in which time was not strict and life and death were not the main things, just things among other things. Yantu had once said that he liked to live, and just to live was enough, so who knows, perhaps even sleeping for days was thrilling for him. His kindness, Zhu Fang decided, came from the way he relaxed and let time and the moment come over him. He didn't want to be other than where he was, and although he didn't seem to need much himself, he enjoyed bringing others into a similar understanding. Then Zhu Fang drifted off into places where his thoughts were lighter than snowflakes and melted before he can grasp them. On the third day, Yantu sat up and said bluntly, amiably, get some sleep. What do you think you are, a roadside shrine? Only the slightest threads of melancholy lay on Zhu Fang, but they burned like the long streamers of a jellyfish. He touched his chest and said simply, my heart isn't at peace. I can't fool myself. And I thought, up here where it's so quiet, Yantu said, I always thought you'd be a teacher, being so sincere and all. Zhu Fang usually took his friend literally, since the other possibilities were too various to work out. The meditation was making Zhu Fang notice the visual oddity of ordinary things, their tendency to tilt into the non-ordinary. His friend's eyes looked beautiful, not quite human in the dim light. Well, since you ask, yes, I do worry. I get anxious. My life is going past me like a galloping horse. 
I get depressed. I don't feel well. I don't feel that I'm of any use. But at other times I feel clear as if, well, there's not the slightest veil over my eyes. And then I forget again. Why don't you tell me? I can let you know if you're on the right track and where you're not, Yantu grinned. I'll whack your ideas away. Prune the views. Zhu Fang took the invitation as a cue to describe moments of treasured insight. Years of them. Everything he understood about the universe. Yes, he thought, this is exactly what I need. To tell my friend and he'll understand. Once he began to talk, he warmed to the task and his yearning grew. His chest actually hurt. Each experience he described, Yan Tu batted away. Zhu Fang couldn't protest. The stories were nice, but they were in the past. He was saying, it was as if the bottom dropped out of a bucket. But the contrarian voice in his head was not impressed. Where is that bottomless bucket now, it asked. The bucket still has fears in it. Yan Tu wasn't impressed either. Zhu Fang saw that what had been significant in one time, a glimpse of great happiness, was indeed real yet it no longer had the power to soothe. Zhu Fang felt pale and wan. His balloon had been punctured, but even his emotion he saw as just a small transparent doubt, almost a prayer, a tear, a raindrop, a glass bead. Without his achievements to compare itself with, his sorrow drifted away. A simple quiet remained. Then into the silence, Yantu did something surprising. He roared. His roar or shout or whatever it was was deafening in the hut. And that's when everything stopped for Zhu Fang. He didn't think noise or loud. He didn't hear. Nothing was on his mind. Zhu Fang shivered and shook. The hook from an old song looped in his head. Anywhere else is too far away. At this moment, his thoughts didn't feel as if they belonged to him. Then Yantu said, Don't you know that the family treasure doesn't come in by the gate? Let the teaching flow out from your own breast to cover the sky and earth. These ordinary words hit Zhu Fang like a blow in the chest. His heart felt larger than all of space. He wept and shouted. He yelled out for joy. Today, Tortoise Mountain has finally awakened. Tortoise Mountain has achieved the way. Yantu laughed and thumped him and grabbed him and they danced together. They danced slowly with encumbered grace while the snow fell quietly and the world was otherwise still. Then Yantu ate an extra helping of the rice and went back to sleep. Zhu Fang didn't sleep but watched in happiness the whole day through. Working with the Kohen. What if it's true that real insight and joy don't come from the direction you expect such things to come from? If what you really want could come from any direction, that information might change the way you conduct your life. Instead of watching out for danger, you might be vigilant for happiness. Some people don't remember their dreams. Yet, if they try to remember... Their dreams come gradually into awareness. At first a wisp, then a scene, and so on. They are learning how to walk in the dream's domain, and things that once seemed too small to notice became obvious. Happiness could be like this. If you were willing to relax with whatever came, there would be nothing wrong with sadness or any other difficulty. Since joy might be hiding anywhere, you would be willing to look with curiosity at sadness or fear, just in case. Zhu Fang's version of this strategy is to wait and let things come to him. When you feel sorrow, it might be taken as a request to sit down, right where you are, on the brown Afghan carpet, and feel more of your life. Or maybe you are happy, there on the brown Afghan carpet. It doesn't matter. Suddenly you hear, really hear, the Canada geese crying overhead. If you don't ask your sorrow to leave or try to make happiness stay, either might be something merely present, like the snow on Tortoise Mountain. Then both happiness and sorrow can be interesting and even paradoxically satisfying. Sorrow might be a sort of reverse Pandora's box from which, when you open it, happiness flies out. I might jump up and say, Today the Canada geese have attained the way. There is a saying that everything we do is in the service of the self and there isn't one, a self, that is. Zhu Fang felt that he had joined his friend's world because they now shared a language. Zhu Fang saw the mountain as his own body, and so it too became enlightened. That was rather a lot of self to have, but it wasn't personal or grand. What if he had awakened at the sight of a mouse? Well, would he have shouted, Today the mouse has attained the way? Yes, he decided he would have. What he had thought of himself wasn't so important after all. 
He decided that his insight was what made Yantu seem so objective. Yantu didn't have an idea of Yantu that he had to groom and manicure. Yantu's shout kept ringing in the brightness of the things around Zhu Fang, who, against all expectation, became notable and funny. Thousands of people came to Zhu Fang. Some of his students became great teachers of the age. Some were transformed but lived invisible and anonymous, as Chinese dragons are supposed to, teaching calligraphy in malls. Others, of course, noticed no particular change in themselves. When people thanked him, he said, it's got nothing to do with me. He seemed to regard teaching as an ex extended party with dark jokes. Zhu Fang did not think of his point of view as limited to his own body or his own personality, but he spoke also for the cities, the rivers, the trees. William Blake saw heaven in a wildflower. Zhu Fang said, when I pick up the earth in my fingers, it's the size of a grain of rice. When I drop it, it might as well be in a black bucket. You can't find it anywhere. Hit the drum, call everyone to look for it. Another time, perhaps when the piety of the monks was getting on his nerves, he said, the whole world is a monk's eye. Where will you go shit? When Yantu became a teacher, his character was, as it always had been, unpredictable, indifferent to the things others prized. He was so clever that people just assumed that he knew what he was doing. When his temple was attacked, he sent his people away, but himself sat in meditation in the great hall. Perhaps he was tired of the long war. Perhaps he looked inside and couldn't find the thought of running away. A soldier rode in over the black and white tiled floor and killed him with a spear. Yantu had said when he went, he would go with a great shout. And in the villages for miles around, people claimed to have heard this yell. His last teaching, the same one he had given on Tortoise Mountain. When he was a friend, he was a good friend. And when it was time to go, he wasn't the sort of person to hang around. While the obvious theme of the koan about Tortoise Mountain is to point out the unpredictable sources of joy, the other theme is of a true friend. A true friend here is one who surprises or disturbs you in a particular way. As long as you are fixated in a particular direction, a friend may seem like a distraction or even a nuisance. But when what happens, he or she is probably doing a good job of being your friend.
Thank you for joining me in this meditation. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Alchemy of Self podcast. If you resonate with our message, please show us some love by hitting the subscribe button and giving us a like. You can also visit our website at www.romza.com to continue your journey of self-discovery and keep up with our latest offerings. With love and harmony from all of us at the Alchemy of Self podcast.